Tonight we're continuing this series on filthy lucre. If you do not have a handout or uh, if you need uh, to grab another handout, there are some on the back. Uh, there's a little music stand back there. You can grab those or send someone else to grab them for you if you wish. wish. I thought that it's, it's been a little bit since we had an opportunity to uh, go over this, so I will kind of let you fill in the blanks a little bit as we kind of catch back up uh, on this aspect of money and on this aspect of uh, our material possessions and goods. What's the most money you've ever had in your possession? Like just straight cash. Um, I, I had a wad of money in Jamaica. I had to, I had to transfer American into Jamaican, and I had to... Um, basically feed uh, an entire youth group of about 30 people for the week. And so I didn't want to have to do this multiple times. So I went down and just got, I said, I'm going to need this much money. And they transferred over to Jamaica. And so they, they, they handed me a bag, a brown paper bag that was about this big. It was just full of just wads of cash. And I was sure I was going to get shot before I got to the van. I, 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 I was just sure. I was just walking with a bag of money. And it was great when the kids, when we went to KFC in Jamaica, which is not the same as KFC in America. I'm just going to let you know this. Um, when we got there, uh, the kids were like, they always asked the same thing, how much money were you able to spend? I told them they could spend $50 each. And they're like, whoa, but pretty much the cost of the meals was $50 Jamaican each. So I was just, we were just handing over wads of cash. I don't know if that's the most money I've had in my hands, but it was the most in trouble I felt with a lot of money, just like this a little bit. Um, there's just something about money, isn't there? There's something about funds and that. So just as a review for those of you that were here before, maybe those of you that weren't here, I, I know some of you are fill-in-the-blank uh, kind of people. So you've kind of got the passage there. We had a chance to go through really uh, the first side, the, the front side of this page last time we were together, and uh, some of the reminders concerning um, money and concerning our finances, mammon is also the term that is used within Scripture, is there's these reminders within, within the Word of God of its corrosiveness, just that it can, it can get eaten away, it can go away very quickly, uh, of the corruption that can come with it, and uh, even the complacency that can come in terms of those things. Uh, another thing that is compared to is, is compared to a God, as you see up there, sorry, I might advance a little fast, is, is we serve either God or money. And so it can become a God, or hence the name, the title of the series following under that. Uh, it can also become something that is an idol. Uh, we walk through uh, really kind of the origin of what economic structure even was a little bit in terms of the scriptures and what it looked like there at the beginning, how uh, when God created the earth, there was abundance, there was cooperation, the planet actually worked with us. There wasn't all this, the, th the thorns and the thistles and all of those things. Uh, there was a balance and that is what we look forward to, go, to going back towards when it comes to eternity. So these things were kind of all in place. And uh, these areas of abundance, cooperation, and balance are things that were lost when it came to the fall. So I hope you got those filled in or someone next to you writes fast. And so we walk through uh, redemption. And we walk through the way that we are able to kind of have some of these bad. We, we de deal with scarcity. Uh, there is a limited amount and there can be a limited amount. We are instructed in God's word about the importance of work over and over and over. Uh, even the, I, I had in my notes, I didn't have it up there, the entire book of Proverbs talks about how important it is to work and the importance of work. Uh, we see all throughout scripture the principle of saving, 
the importance of saving and anticipating uh, for times where there may be some need. Uh, we are reminded of the importance of giving, giving towards others, giving towards the work of the Lord, of being, being a conduit of provision toward others. And, uh, and then also kind of this competition. And by competition, while I know we're capitalists, we like competition, some of the reminder there in, the, in James is we are, we are wanting to do the best that we can do. And so there's a little bit of that as well. So I know, you wish I had gone that fast through it last time. But uh, we, there was a little more depth last time. That took us a little, about 45 minutes to get through that last time. So if you want to turn the page tonight, we're going to look at um, just different aspects of the problems that the Word of God uh, reminds us of in terms of money. And the Word of God, as we said when we met together the last time we were walking through this, the Word of God has as much to say about money and has as much, as much to say about our material goods as almost anything else in the book, in, in the book of, of the Bible. Everything comes back to this over and over. Christ talks about it. The Word of God talks about it. There is always really one of the great evaluations of our spiritual walk, whether we like it or not, is how do we handle our money? How do we handle our goods? How do we handle our stuff? Are we good in terms of this area of being good stewards in terms of what God has provided? So if you want to, turn to the Gospel of Luke, Luke chapter 18. You've got, uh, for those of you that maybe have not been here before, the goal is to kind of turn ahead a little bit. Uh, You can see on that handout what's coming. Uh, If you want to get there as we kind of move forward, and uh, we'll try to move in a, in a manner that we can kind of finish this whole thing out tonight. Um, our next idol, I'm still kind of working on our idol. I've got a couple of idols left. One is fashion and clothing, and uh, the idol of clothing. That one I, I, I'm very interested in uh, as I've been kind of working through that. And the other one is the, the idol of busyness. And uh, I'm also, so I'm like, which one do I want to start with and finish with? And then I realize I'm too busy to think about that right now. So we'll, we'll get to those eventually. Luke. Chapter 18, um, let's back up because there, there's a story that goes into verse 23. So let's back up to Luke 18, starting in verse 18. Now a certain ruler asked him, saying, good teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? So Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good but one, that is God. Do you, uh, you know the commandments, do not commit adultery, do not murder, do not steal, do not bear false witness, honor your father and mother. And he said... All these things I've kept from my youth. Pretty impressive. So Jesus heard these things. He said to him, you still lack one thing. Sell all you have, distribute to the poor, and you'll have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. But when he heard this, he became very sorrowful, for he was very rich. And when Jesus saw that he had become very sorrowful, he said, how hard it is for those who have riches to enter the kingdom of God. For it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. First thing we see here is a problem of when money prevents full devotion. When money prevents full devotion. This young man had been called. There are some that point out there's a possibility, maybe here, that he was one that could have been called in terms of following Christ. Uh, They pointed out that it's the same fall to call to follow Jesus as Matthew, Andrew, Peter, Philip. Uh, He was feeling led to and wanted to. There's an aspect, obviously, he's he's asking about eternal life, and we would say this is really bad evangelism on the part of Christ, right? Like uh, he doesn't really mention the gospel at all, but Christ, who knows the heart, knows some of the issues that are going on here. 
I like what one other person said. He said, this person might have become as renowned as all of the disciples, but he turned away because he was very rich. He had an opportunity to follow the Savior and to experience what it meant to follow in the footsteps of Christ and to be around Christ through all of these things. Uh, Gordon MacDonald talking about this says, why did Jesus confront this young man about his wealth when others in the Bible, in both the New Testament and the Old Testament, appeared to be free to have as many possessions as they want? There's only one conceivable answer. Jesus, looking into his heart, knew that the heart of this young man had been possessed by his own wealth. This rich young man defined himself with his money and his status. To put it another way, his money and his lifestyle were his gods, and he worshiped them both. Money, and this is true with anything. We've been seeing this as we walk through this, but there's an important reminder that money and our possessions are idolatry if it prevents this full, fervent devotion to God. If it keeps us from being devoted to God, it's a problem. It is rising itself up too high. It's interesting, another commentary points out, he says, notice that when the young man went away sorrowful, Jesus did not run after him and say, no, 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 this was only a metaphor. Money had become his idol, and this young man was going to have to reject it totally. Bonhoeffer said, our hearts have room only for one all-embracing devotion, and we can only cleave to one Lord. As we said before, We cannot serve God and money. There has to be this devotion aspect. If money, the pursuit of money, protecting our own money, and trying to even gain more money prevents us from being devoted to God, it becomes an idol. It becomes a modern idol up there in front of us that we bow down to and we worship. Acts chapter 4 is the next one we have here. In Acts chapter 4, we're going to have a a reminder of giving, Uh, one one of the great offering collection stories in the Bible. In fact, one of the most important offering collection stories in the Bible. Look with me, uh, starting in verse 32. Now, the multitude of those who believed were of one heart and one soul. Neither did anyone say that any of the things he possessed was his own, but they had all things in common. So they were communists. Socialists, they were stewards. They recognized the responsibility that God had for them to care for each other. And with great power, the apostles gave witness to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. Nor was there anyone among them who lacked. That is interesting. Now, We are really concerned, rightfully so, because of prosperity gospel and the damage that is done to people, individuals, and even to the gospel by those that are in the if you give, you'll get back mode. But we have to be careful in everything in Scripture, in everything in terms of theology, and everything in terms of truth, that just because there are people that freak out and wave their hands doesn't mean that we're not going to feel like our hands can go up in the air every once in a while. 
And just because there are those who abuse certain truths in scriptures, does that mean that we can abandon certain truths in scripture? This is what the word of God says. They all gave. No one owned anything and everyone was provided for. For all who were possessors of land or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of the things that were sold. Now, Pastor Dave, this just sounds irresponsible, doesn't it? Now, I know that this is something, this is a passage that I I personally knew people that there was an abuse of this, where they, uh, because they, they were taking care of themselves and they were good stewards of what they had, and they were in a church setting where that pastor gave, basically got up and said, everyone needed to take out a second mortgage to do the things that they wanted to do as a church. And they said, that literally, they came to our house to talk to us about why we hadn't done that yet. That's not what we're talking about here. I think that would even violate what we were supposed, how we're supposed to handle the goods that we have. But it's here, right? Which was, there is a, we could at least say this, if we want to at least be a little gracious. There was a significant downsizing of what they had to be able to provide for and to focus on what God had for them. They were willing to not have as much personally for the Savior and for each other. They lay them at the apostles' feet, verse 35. They distributed to each as anyone had need. Man, that's a trust in the apostles too, isn't it? We trust the apostles with everything we own. We no longer own everything, and we're gonna trust them to distribute all of our finances to take care of all of us. Boy, you talk about a job, talk about a job I do not want to have as a pastor is if you all said, we're all gonna sell everything we have and we're gonna put it in your hands, pastor, and the pastoral staff, and we trust you to distribute that evenly. No, thank you. I'll have Chris Wilcox do that. All right? And Chris doesn't want that either. And Joseph, verse 36, who was also named Barnabas by the apostles, which is translated son of encouragement, a Levite of the country of Cyprus, having land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is, it had been happening, and then we get a specific action, something that takes place here. And I'm sure we would think to ourselves, this, these had to be incredible, incredible moments for the church, for these people to know what these people have, for, Bar, for Barnabas to have land, and Barnabas to have this to be able to, to basically take to the feet of the disciples, to, to entrust the disciples to care for everyone, was really something. There was probably a little bit of, a, there was some momentum here. There was testimony. There was example of what was taking place. And I'm sure there were those that there was a level of respect and admiration that the people in the church had for those that were doing these things. But we know what happens next. Chapter 5. But a certain man named Ananias with Sapphira, his wife, sold a possession, and he kept back a part of the proceeds, his wife also being aware of it, and brought a certain part of it and laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back part of the price of the land for yourself? While it remained, was it not your own? And after it was sold, was it not in your own control? Some good biblical economics here, by the way. Why have you conceived this thing in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. Then Ananias, hearing these words, fell down and breathed his last. And then one of those understatements in the Bible, so great fear came upon all those who heard these things. I'm gonna guess giving may have taken a little dip at this point for a little bit, where suddenly people are like, okay, we need to make sure that we're not trying to, we're, we're being genuine in all of these things. And young men arose and wrapped him up, carried him out and buried him. Now it was about three hours later when his wife came in, 
not knowing what had happened. And Peter answered her, tell me whether you sold the land for so much. And she said, yes, for so much. Then Peter said to her, how is it that you have agreed together to test the spirit of the Lord? Look, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door and they will carry you out. Then immediately she fell down at his feet and breathed her last. And the young men came in and found her dead and carrying her out, buried her by her husband. So great fear came upon the church and upon all those who heard these things. What happens here is, and, and what Ananias and Sapphira are guilty of, is this false impression. There's a false impression about how sacrificial they were. They wanted to appear more generous than they truly were. Peter made it clear. Their sin was not that they were not donating enough. Their sin was they were lying about what was taking place in their lives. They were trying to make themselves appear to be more generous. They were trading money for reputation. They were trading money for reputation. Anytime we try to buy reputation, there's an indication there that there's some idolatry that is going on. Anytime we try to make ourselves higher, we're dealing with kind of multiple idolatry that is going on there. Um, I saw a study once, it was a, it was a study of doctors and lawyers who make a lot of money, at least in terms of the, the, the world around them, but the study found out that many doctors and lawyers, even though they made more money than others, did so without gaining wealth, and actually in many cases were the least generous of people that were surveyed. So the study kind of tried to figure out why, and what they found was because they were doctors and lawyers, they felt compelled to create a certain impression about the homes they lived in, the cars that they drove, and the impression that they had to the world around them. You don't have to just be guilty of this in terms of acts giving money to the church. We can overspend and overdo it trying to create an impression that we are at a certain status. False impressions. Another example of this happens in the Old Testament when Hezekiah has people from the outside in so he can kind of give them the royal how rich we are tour. Look at how great we have it. How, look at how rich we are. Isaiah gives him a rebuke and it, it's in, it says even in 2 Chronicles 32 that God left him. What was wrong? It was not necessarily that he had all of this. It was he was trying to make an impression of wealth and of glory, and maybe even of strength to those who were the foreign ambassadors or emissaries. Hezekiah's wealth and Israel's wealth, like ours, came from God and belonged to God. It was not his. It was the Lord's. Anytime we use money to give people the impression that we are successful or we are smart or we are important or we know what we are doing, we are in danger of becoming idolaters. And, a, and another part of this, I think, in terms of a false oppression, as we kind of started to touch on a little bit at least, is that, that when we give the impression that our wealth comes from us and we are not reminded of and even are willing to give glory to God because our wealth comes from him, we are denying God the glory and praise and thanksgiving that he is due and we are putting ourselves in that place. We have to be very careful. We need reminders often. If it weren't for the Lord, 
We wouldn't even have the faculties to be able to make the money or hold the job or have uh, the things that are alive that God provided for us. The next one is in Luke 19. Luke 19. Verses 1 through 10. Then Jesus entered and passed through Jericho. Now behold, there was a man named Zacchaeus who was a chief tax collector, and he was rich. Not very rich, by the way. I kind of, when the Bible says someone's very rich, that young man had been very rich. Zacchaeus was just rich, not very rich, but still rich. And he sought to see Jesus, who Jesus was, but could not because of the crowd, for he was of short stature. So he ran ahead and climbed up into a sycamore tree to see him, for he was going to pass that way. And when Jesus came to the place, he looked up and saw him and said to him, Zacchaeus, make haste and come down, for today I must stay at your house. So he made haste and came down and received him joyfully. But when they saw it, they all complained, saying, He has gone to be a guest with a man who is a sinner. Then Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, Lord, look, Lord, I give half of my goods to the poor, and if I have taken anything from anyone by false accusation, I restore fourfold. And Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house because he is He also is a son of Abraham, for the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Now this, I'm kind of going a little bit different direction because there's definitely a positive here. There's some negative here as well. But I think there's this reminder here of money giving this flawed perspective. We won't go into the book of James. We went through James before. Even James chapter 2 talks about this, that if someone who appears to be rich or someone who is rich comes into the church and someone who isn't rich comes into the church, you are guilty if you have different perspectives on different people. So one thing I think that is important to point out here is is that those who see it complain. Why? Because they have this flawed perspective. For, For a person who was poor or a person who was needy to come to Christ would have been a cause for celebration. But their perspective concerning his man was a little bit opposite of James. James is, we tend to be really nice and really generous towards people who we think have much. Here, because of the nature of who Zacchaeus was and how he even attained that money, there was just this wrong perspective in terms of what was happening. I do love side-by-siding the rich young ruler and Zacchaeus. Jesus doesn't even have to say anything. Zacchaeus knows it. I'm giving half of what I own to the poor. That, that's more than 10%. If you, I don't know what your math is, but 50% is a larger amount than 10%. And above and beyond that, I'm going to pay everyone back and I'm going to restore everything taken by false accusation fourfold. Okay, so that's 400%, which also is more than 10%, just in case, you know, just some math here a little bit. How many times are we guilty of the distortions that come? When it comes to money, the evidence of Zacchaeus's salvation was a redeemed perspective on money, which was the most important thing in his life. He had been redeemed. He was changed in the area that meant the most to him, that affected his life, his character, and even his identity the most. I want to wonder what kind of tax collector Zacchaeus was after this probably a popular one because he was the guy that didn't take the illegal awful cut off the top so here we have again a perspective that has been changed Zacchaeus was surrendering his worship of money 
because of his devotion to Christ. And it affected how he provided for others. It wasn't just he made things right. Zacchaeus is also taking care of the poor. And he may have been one who was taking advantage of the poor even before that. We have flawed perspectives just like those in biblical times did. It is a distortion and messing things up and having a wrong perspective to think that God's blessing is indicated by having much. That is not a true indicator of God's blessing. Now, when a person has much as a child of God, have they been blessed by God? Yes. But see, the problem was, the flip side of that was that poverty seemed to be a sign of God's displeasure. This has been something that has distorted Christianity and distorted those who are followers of God all throughout time. Religion gets turned into personal prosperity. Love Jesus, get rich. That, that's really the, the short story. And too many churches, as we have said, are saturated with all of the gimmicks for being blessed, all of the formulas, all of the seven folds and 20 folds and 100 folds and all of those folds and then cloths that fold and all that sort of stuff. I remember the first time, I don't, I don't know how I got on the list, but man, somebody sent me an email and they had a little piece of cloth they wanted to send me that was gonna be, I mean, all I thought of was this, snake oil, which probably in terms of the satanic connection may have probably been right. We have to be careful believing that worth of someone should in any way be measured by their income. When we lack or when we have too much, we are reminded of how we follow God. Um, one more. And I apologize because some of these probably get a little more stepping on toes than others. Let's go to James chapter 4. James 4, uh, verses 13, 14, and 15. Come now, you who say, today or tomorrow we will go to such and such a city, spend a year there, buy and sell, and make a profit. Whereas you do not know what will happen tomorrow, for what is your life? It is even a vapor that appears for a little time and then vanishes away. Instead, you ought to say, if the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. One other issue or area is when money persuades a final decision. Now, if you are a biblical scholar and you know your word, I know automatically you're thinking to yourself, wait a minute. There are some passages that very importantly say if you're going to do a certain plan, you need to know what the cost of that plan is. Again, there's a balance here. We need to understand what James is talking about here. These are passages, especially in James, that step on our toes. And I'll quote someone else, because sometimes it's safer that way. Another pastor said this, One of the most rampant forms of idolatry in the world and the church is a tendency of letting money, rather than God, guide our decisions. And we can all be guilty of this. This illustration that James gives is similar to the way that we make decisions. Have you ever had someone come to you and say, I really need some help? And your response is, well, I'd really like to help, but things are a little tight this month. Or 
I wonder if we should buy a new refrigerator. Well, we'll see how big the tax refund is. Now, again, I know what you're thinking. No, 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 I'm, I'm, just, I'm just holding a good budget. But what is truly being the guide to our decisions? I'll quote another pastor. The Christian is given the high calling of using money without serving money. Using money without serving money. We use money when we allow God to determine our economic decisions. We serve money when we allow money to determine our economic decisions. We have to make a decision. Who is making the economic decisions? God or money? Okay, I'm reading someone else. So this is not for me, so you can't frown at me. Do I buy a particular home on the basis of God's calling or how much I make a month? Do I buy a new car or lease a car because I can afford it or because God is instructing us and leading us to buy a new car? If money determines what we do or do not do, then we are serving money. It becomes our boss. If God is leading us in what we do or do not do, then God is the one that we are serving. This author continues because I didn't want to admit this. He says, suppose my wife Carolyn says to me, let's do this or that. He's quoting James. And I say to him, we don't have enough money. Who made the decision? Money. Money made the decision. I did not say, well, honey, let's pray together and see if God wants us to do it. Although that would probably shut down most of those decisions, wouldn't it? Let's pray about this and let's make the determination. Does that mean that we don't determine? Does that mean money isn't a part of our decision-making process? No, I'm not saying that. The Word of God is very clear in that. We worked through economic decision-making earlier. Our financial resources are a factor that should be weighted. If we say, I'm going to pray about that, and the Lord has determined, yes, by his will and by his leading, I shall buy the Ferrari. Maybe it was a really good deal on that Ferrari. But there need to be some other factors that measure in to this. Like I said, it's Luke, I'll even give you the passage. Luke 14, Jesus acknowledges how important it is to sit down and calculate the cost for any project or decision. But that is not to be the rule in the decision-making process. I would even argue that in Luke 14, Christ is talking about because God has led to do this project or led to do this aspect of this decision-making process, now you need to count the cost of what it takes to do that. If God is leading you to do something, you say, well, I just don't know if I can afford that right now. Who made the decision? The God of money. Now, there aren't any teens in here, right? Because the kids... The teens are like, see, mom and dad, you should not be saying we can't afford that. You should pray about it. This is important. These truths are important. These principles are important. And and, and we need to be reminded of these things. Who is making the decision? God or the balance? Does the balance not count? No, it does count. But it can't be the decision maker. Because there are times... We can all think back to times where we actually made what we thought was a pretty good balanced book decision, 
But according to James 4.14, the problem was is something happened the next day and that availability of that funding was no longer there. So we have to be careful. If the Lord wills, we shall live and do this or that. James isn't even saying they shouldn't do that. What they're saying is you need to bring this before the Lord because God may be doing something different. You didn't bring God into the decision-making process. God has to be a part of these things. So how do we respond? We're going to go through some things I think that will be familiar to you, I would hope. We've used these terms uh, a little bit, even kind of walking through this. So the first way that we respond is we are to submit as a steward. So definition, it's not going to be up there, so you're going to have to write fast. I'll repeat it a couple of times. This is actually, this is John MacArthur's definition. I think it's an excellent definition. A steward is one who acts as a supervisor or administrator as of finances and property for another or others. I repeat it. A steward is one who acts as a supervisor or administrator as of finances and property for another or others. Even for us, uh, when it comes to leadership within the church, one of the things that we are, want to be reminded of is we are stewards of what God has provided for this church in terms of, like we say here, finances and property. Uh, we look at things differently when it's God's, and we look at things differently when it's not ours, or even someone else has given towards what is God's, and we are trying to use what God has provided from others. Probably I would say that the, the biggest issue here that we have to be reminded of is actually who owns it. To be a steward means it's not mine. I don't own any of it. Anytime we use, and I know we kind of just say it flippantly, and, and I'm not saying that you're some big sinner or I'm some big sinner. Anytime we say, well, I'm going to give so much to God, <laughs> it's all his. You're just using his, his provision in a manner they say, well, I'm going to you know, if I, if I give you something to use, and I give you something to use, but it's, it's mine, and you decide to misuse it and abuse it and complain when I ask for it back, there's a problem. But that is what we do with God. He gives and gives and gives, and then when he leads us to do this or do that or handle things in the right way, we, we mess it all up, and we act like it is ours. Every, think about every. Thing you own. How have you thought in terms of this will be used for God? I want it to be used for the Lord. We are stewards. There is a submission aspect that has to be here. It's not mine, it's God's. We are, as a steward, responsible to use the finances, and use the property in a manner and even in, within the time frame designated by the owner. If we do otherwise, we are violating the rights of the owner. Um, some verses that 
uh, could possibly help in terms of this, you see there, right? So these are ones that you kind of look to ahead. I cheated. I printed them out. Uh, so first we have Psalm 24.1. The earth is the Lord's and all its fullness, the world and those who dwell therein. Acts 17, 24, 25, God, who made the world and everything in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands, nor is he worshiped with men's hands, as though he needed everything, since he gives to all life, breath, and all things. Genesis 1, 28, then God blessed them and said to them, be fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air. Now, we may want to counter a little bit and say, well, I made this, I made this money with my time, with, with my energy, uh, with my expertise and all of those things. But again, what is the source of your time, energy, and expertise? God is the one who does this. How, how do individuals find themselves? I mean, did, did you work it out for you to be born in the right place? I mean, how did you, how did you figure that out? How did you work those things out? Deuteronomy uh, 8.18, Moses says, You shall remember the Lord your God, for it is he who gives you the power to get wealth. Even Moses says, God is the one who gives you the ability to even do these things. So to be reminded all the way back to the economics from before we even have the fall is this. All wealth comes from God. All of it. Not anything else. Not, not, not how well you've handled the markets. Not how well you've worked your job, not how well you've set aside things. All wealth comes from God. Now, can good stewards handle what God has provided? Well, the parables make it very clear. Uh, maybe you have not done a good job, and you might say, actually, I don't have too much really well. And God would say, well, I kind of provided all of this, and you've just squandered it on fill in the blank. I don't want to pick on your hobby, so I won't mention any. But maybe there's some things you spent a little bit too much money on. One of my worst end of my summers was when my dad came in to visit me, and he was noticing how much pop I was drinking. And so he came back to me with a mathematical breakdown of how much money I had spent in the summer on pop. I was miserable. I drowned my sorrows in Mountain Dew. We, when we mishandle, it's not God's fault. We were still bad stewards in terms of that. And, and so our problem, and the Word of God talks about these things, it kind of reminds of this, is, is, is a prioritization aspect. Well, well, what are we doing in terms of these priorities, in terms of prioritization? Um, I, I didn't put these on there, but I'm gonna, I'll give you a couple of verses to, to at least look up and add there. Matthew 16, 24 to 26, talks about whoever will lose his life will gain it. What will it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his Life, the preoccupation with here, maybe we would say, I like the term temporal ambitions, neglects eternal thought, God's purposes. Another verse would be 2 Corinthians 4, 16 to 18. Uh, we do not lose heart, though the outer nature is wasting away and our inner, our inner nature is renewed day by day. For this slight momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory Beyond all comparison, it says there, as we look not to the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. There's a, a wasting away and there's an eternal aspect. Are we too preoccupied with, to use a word from the word of God, the transient, 
the things that are just going to come and go. The, the, the vapor is the term that James used there. We need to have a, a prioritization on the eternal when it comes to God, when it comes to others, when it comes to investment, uh, to be reminded that when, when we think and, and try to orient our minds in terms of investing eternally, that will change how we handle what God has given to us. Colossians, um, there's a reminder to set our things uh, on uh, Colossians 3, uh, verses 2 to 4. Set your mind on things that are above, not on things of this earth. Second um, Corinthians uh, talks about, again, uh, the, this, these slight afflictions. Philippians 4, 11 to 13. Paul says, I have learned whatever situation I'm in to be content. I know how to be brought low. I know how to abound. In any and every circumstance, I've learned the secret of facing plenty and hunger, abundance and need. By the way, and then you, know where that, you know where that ends with, with Philippians 4, 13, right? I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. We love that verse. We forget the context of that verse. Is Paul saying, I can do with nothing. I can do all things through Christ. And so the context there is, again, what is the prioritization? What are the priorities in terms of that? Uh, too, too many people think God plus wealth equals contentment. But the Bible teaches that God plus contentment equals true wealth. Let me say that again. Many believe that God plus wealth equals contentment. But the Bible teaches that God plus contentment equals true wealth. The wealth comes through God and, the, and contentment. It doesn't have to do with the stuff necessarily. We need to make sure that we have a right prioritization. So you got a list there. Um, I'll read the verses, and then we can, I can kind of tell you what these things are. All right, so... According to the Bible, there are things that are of greater value than gold or material riches. So this is kind of a, a quick list of that. First, the souls of people. Matthew 16, 26. What profit is a man if he gains the whole world and loses his own soul? What will a man give in exchange for his soul? So the soul is of more value. Proverbs 16, 8 is righteousness. Better is a little with righteousness than revenues without justice. Verse 16 uh, of Proverbs 16. There's wisdom and understanding. How much better to get wisdom than gold and to get understanding is to be chosen rather than silver. Proverbs 22.1 is a good name. A good name is to be chosen rather than great riches. Loving favor rather than silver and gold. So a good name and loving favor. In Psalm 19.9-10, uh, we are instructed about the reminder of the law of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The judgments of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. More are they to be desired than gold, they than much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and the honeycomb. Psalm 19.1, better is the poor who walks in his integrity than one who is perverse in his lips and is a fool. So integrity is worth more than gold and riches. Proverbs 31.10, who can find a virtuous wife for her worth is far above rubies. To have an excellent or a virtuous wife is more valuable than all of the riches. Psalm 127, verses 3 and 5. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord. The fruit of the womb is a reward. Happy is the man who has his quiver full of them. They shall not be ashamed, but shall speak with their enemies in the gate. The value of children. Philippians chapter 3, verses 7 through 9. The things that were gained to me, these things I have counted loss for Christ. 
Yet indeed, I also count all things lost for, Christ, lost for the excellence of the knowledge of Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whom I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish, that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having my own righteousness, which is from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness which is from God by faith, knowing Christ, the righteousness that comes from knowing Christ. And then Jeremiah chapter 9, verses 23 and 24. Thus says the Lord, Let not the wise man glory in his wisdom, let not the mighty man glory in his might, nor let the rich man glory in his riches, but let him who glories glory in this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord, exercising loving kindness, judgment, and righteousness in the earth, for in these I delight, says the Lord. There are so many higher priorities than riches, gold, and material, and wealth. And I would say in that list, anytime what we have rises above the importance of souls, righteousness, wisdom and understanding, a good name, the law of the Lord, integrity, uh, an excellent wife, an excellent spouse, children, knowing Christ, knowing God, when those things are not the priority, we flip everything. We, we are losing what is most important to gain what is least important. And we get everything mixed up. The world sees wealth as a source of happiness and an end in itself. And that is why people are so driven to acquire wealth. God sees wealth as a means of advancing his work. That's what God sees. He provides for you to advance his work in and through you. A lack of material wealth there are reasons for that. It may be that we trust God more. It may be that we rely on God more. And, 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 and as others, theologians have pointed out very rightfully, if God is providing you more than you need, it's because he's expecting you to do more with that for what he wants you to do. So, what are some other aspects here? Well, start... Hopefully you've already started, but at least if, uh, this is the way I would like to say it. If you are not giving, you should start giving. If you are giving, you should consider what you're giving and ask the Lord to lead in the giving that you are partic participating in. Deuteronomy 14, 23, um, I like one translation. It says, the purpose of giving is to teach you to put God first in your life. The purpose of giving is putting God first. That's why we give to the Lord and his work, because we put him there first. In terms of how we are to set aside first, in terms of we are, how we are supposed to make these decisions. Again, I've been reading other people, I'll continue to do that, especially in giving. One person says this, if you, if you sincerely want to overcome the tendency to make money your God and to show who's truly first in your life, you need to give away what you have first in terms of to him. And it's not because God needs the money. He doesn't. Giving is a necessary step in breaking the grip of money on your heart and life. To give breaks that. If you are not giving to the Lord, I would encourage you to start immediately. It is something that needs to be a part of, our, of our, the rhythm of our lives. It does not 
complete the process. We have to be careful here, right? Because Jesus also says to the Pharisees, you have been tithing on the tithe of the tithe of the tithe. You are spot on. But he also points out, and your hearts are a sinful mess. Because they were saying, if I give, then I'm right with God. No, that doesn't mean that. But how you give is a result of, are you or are you not living right before God? This is a necessary ingredient. For those of you who cook, I do not cook, I consume. But for those of you that cook, you know that there are different ingredients and different amounts of different ingredients. And sometimes if you get those amounts wrong or you leave something out or you, give a, a, you put a wrong uh, ingredient in, it can mess everything up. And I like one illustration to say that, that giving, giving cheerfully, giving generously in the way that God has led us to do is one of the important ingredients in following the Lord. And it, if it is lacking, it can mess everything else up. So... Set a goal. Randy Alcorn, who has some excellent, excellent resources in terms of giving, says this. The act of giving is a vivid reminder that it's not all about God. It's, about, it's all about God, not about us. It's saying, I am not the point. He is the point. He does not exist for me. I exist for him. God's money has a higher purpose than my affluence. Giving is a joyful surrender to a greater person and a greater agenda. It affirms that Christ is Lord. It dethrones me and exalts him, and it breaks the chains of money that would enslave me. Set a goal. Maybe a goal to give more. I don't know what that more is. A goal to provide for others. A goal to take on a missionary. My, my last church at Niles, they were incredible. The amount of times that missionaries came in, we, we were just like First Baptist Church of Illyria is, we would be where the, the new candidates would come in and introduce themselves. They really wouldn't do too much else. It was kind of their first run of standing in front of a church. And one thing the First Baptist Church of Niles did is there was never a year that one of those candidates, the first giver to them was an individual or multiple individuals in that church that were like, I want to be the first one to get this going. I had someone come to me one time. They had only come once. And they said, I want you to know the, f- the first person God provided was in your church. And I was like, who? And he told me. I was like, they left our church three years ago. They, they, they actually, they were driving a long ways. They're at a different church. He goes, they're, they're our most, they've been our most faithful supporter. They respond to our emails. They always want to know what's going on. And I was like, that is incredible. They weren't even members. They just happened to be there on a Sunday that they saw a missionary and they said, that is something that is resonating in my heart. I'm going to give. Let me ask you, who's a missionary that you should give to? That the Lord is leading you. You know what? This is going to be part of while we understand our giving here to this church goes to a, a, a big cut of and an important rightful amount of missionaries that we are providing for. But I'm going to be honest. And, I, and you could talk to some missionaries. Maybe I'm wrong because I'm not a missionary. But the aspect of having those is saying, This is a part of how we are worshiping the Lord that God has led us to provide for your ministry is something. What if you set a goal this year, say we're gonna take on someone to support as a couple, as an individual, as a family, because we wanna be involved in giving to the Lord. Sponsor someone, give to someone. Uh, Our 
right now, our, somebody said, you know, our benevolent fund has, is pretty big right now. I don't know. For those of you that pay attention to the line items, our benevolent fund is pretty big. And it actually has been. Through COVID, um, our benevolent fund grew to about 30000 And it's right about there right now. But I also want to let you know this. I, I've got to go through the math. I'll make Chris do the work. He does all the money work. But we have been providing for a lot of people through the benevolent fund thousands and thousands and thousands of dollars in the last couple of years. And as we do that, people keep providing to that. Uh, I get one of the best parts about my job is the opportunity to, with a card and a check, say, your church family loves you. There are people that know that you're going through this difficulty, and this is how we want to provide for you. I, I get to sit there and, and see the tears and hear the people thanking you. And, and so that is part of that. But individually, what we should do. Um, set goals. Let me give you one. First Timothy. First Timothy chapter 6. came across this and was like, this has got to go in there. This was not in my notes, but then it came in my notes. 1 Timothy 6, right at the end of Paul talking to Pastor Timothy. Verses 17 to 19. Command. I don't know how Timothy, a young pastor, did this, but. Command those who are rich in this present age not to be haughty, nor to trust in uncertain riches, but in the living God who gives us richly all things to enjoy. Let them do good, that they be rich in good works, ready to give willing to share, storing up for themselves a good foundation for the time to come that they may lay hold on eternal life. It says, command people that God has been generous towards and God has provided for that their job is to be doing things that affect eternity. That's how they are supposed to be using what God has given to them. A.W. Tozer said this, as base a thing as money is, it can be transmuted into everlasting treasure. It can be converted into food for the hungry, clothing for the poor. It can keep a missionary actively winning lost men and women to the light of the gospel and thus transmute itself into heavenly values. Any temporal thing can be turned over to God and into everlasting wealth. It can be done with everything we have. And part of this would be Stretch yourself. Quote Randy Alcorn again. As long as I still have something, I believe I own it. But when I give it away, I relinquish control, power, and prestige. The moment of release, the light turns on, the magic spell is broken, the mind clears, and I recognize God is the owner, I'm the servant and steward, and others are the intended beneficiaries of all God has entrusted to me. Another pastor said this. He said, not long ago we had a swing set, not a store-bought aluminum thing, but a custom-made job, huge steel pipes and all. Our children were becoming of the age that were past swing sets. So we decided it would be good to sell it at a garage sale. My next decision was what price to put on it. I went in the backyard and looked it over. This should bring a good price. It's an excellent, excellent backyard swing set. I thought to myself, actually, if I touch this thing up with paint, and kind of cleaned it up and fixed it up, I bet you I could bring a little bit more off of this. And all of a sudden, the spirit struck me, and I became aware of how dangerous this was becoming. I went into the house, kind of tentatively, and asked my wife if she would mind if we gave it away instead of selling it. Before the day was out, we found a young couple with young children who could make good use of it. We gave it to them, and I didn't even paint it up. The simple act of giving 
killed the greed that was starting to grip my heart and the power of money was broken, at least until the next thing I wanted to sell. And I like what he says here. I started thinking, what do I own that I can give away? And how much would that stretch me? And how much do I need it? This is an area that all of us should consider. I'm not telling you if you give everything away, God is going to bless you fourfold, sevenfold, a hundredfold, or anythingfold. But I, I am telling you this. The word of God is very clear that the stuff you have is not your stuff. The money you have is not your money. And all of it can be used to affect eternity. And when we get into that mindset, it's no longer an idol.